Well, they are among the country's most vulnerable kids, those who wind up in group homes for kids in foster care. And a Global News APTN investigation has uncovered some allegations of unsafe and unsanitary conditions in some privately run group homes for foster kids in Ontario. The months-long project included interviews of more than two dozen former workers, child welfare experts, ministry documents, and court filings, all to tell the story of a private company that some former employees say placed profits over the care of those vulnerable kids. Here's a bit of what was said in the report. These homes were in horrible shape. Electricity not working, water not working. That happened on a regular basis. Some staff would say that they're a paycheck. What do you mean? A staff would call a youth a paycheck? Yeah. I've heard multiple staff say that to kids straight to their face. Every young person in care has a price tag. We're talking about companies doing business through kids as commodities. One of the voices you heard in there was Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent Carolyn Jarvis, who worked on this story for uh, quite a while. And she's here now uh, to share more details about it. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's quite the story. I mean, I guess to set the context, how do children end up? How do foster kids end up in this system, in this private system? Well, you know, it's a number of steps and it also depends on where you live and what the degree of resources are. And as you could imagine, there are more resources in urban settings than there are in rural settings and even fewer resources available to children and families in First Nations communities, especially in far north and northwestern communities specific to Ontario. But that holds true in many parts of Canada. And so typically they try to keep kids within their families as as the first attempt. So is there a relative that can take them into what's either called kinship care or in First Nations communities, customary care is also a term that's used. If that doesn't work, they look at alternative methods of keeping kids together and within their families. Then come foster care homes that they look as an option. Group homes uh, are an option that are used as a matter of last resort. And kids know that. They know that that's the end of the line where all other attempts have failed or if other attempts, unfortunately, haven't been tried first. Why you go into the private side of the system? Why private foster care homes? Why private group homes? Well, oftentimes that's because children's aid societies don't have homes that they're operating themselves. It's hard to find foster care parents, certainly in light of the pandemic, but even prior to that. And Children's Aid Society, by and large, in recent years, got out of the business of running group homes. They came into all sorts of controversy for a time. You know, they are a place where bad things happen and they get um, bad reputations. And so they didn't run them. They contracted out third parties to run these companies. And so, in essence, the government sends uh, an envelope of cash to Children's Aid Society. And the Children's Aid Society, instead of running these facilities themselves, contracts out a third party and sends that envelope then on to them. And these third parties, in some cases, are not for profit, but in many cases are for profit private entities that, as the name would suggest, are driven by finances and making a buck. And when experts tell us money is the driver, that often comes before quality of care. And that is what our investigation found, certainly in the instance of Connor Holmes, so say kids who went there and workers. So what did you set out to find with this investigation? What was, what was your premise going in and what did you attempt to learn? Well, we received information from sources in early days that pointed us to um, a number of homes where troubling things were going on. Kids were going hungry. They weren't getting access to basic medical care and eye care. And frankly, uh, what might, might be just as alarming as the one home that we investigated is that there was a list of homes. This wasn't one instance. It was 
many that were put on a list for various regions and various, uh, you know, egregious things that were happening at these homes. And so we set out to investigate them and, you know, in speaking with experts and people who are in close contact with the field over and over, uh, we were able to focus our gaze most acutely on, on a, two or three operators uh, and eventually Connor Holmes in this latest series became our focus. You know, I should note a month ago, we did do a half hour documentary, which aired on Global News as the new reality, uh, which documented the system wide problems that the child welfare industry is experiencing in Ontario and which are very similar to other provinces across the country. And it was after that sort of holistic approach that we then narrowed down into this one company. But it's truly an example of what can happen within a privatized system of care where, you know, we had people writing us yesterday, Ben, saying, I worked in some of these homes, kids were wearing rags and managers told us them's the lumps, essentially, that's what they get and you got to live with it. Um, and, and yeah, money is the driver instead of the well-being of the kids. Is it lucrative? Well, experts would tell us that some people get very, very rich. I mean, I can't look into the personal bank accounts of the people who are operating these homes, but certainly the, the wealth that some of these people have accumulated would suggest um, that there is money to be made. You know, in, in one of the quotes from, from part three of our series, you know, Kiaris Garabagi, who is the dean of the this, of this school at um, Toronto Metropolitan University, says, you know, some people are getting very, very rich off of this. And if you think about the money that's changing hands, you know, typically a child in a group home in Ontario is fetching anywhere between $200 and $300 a day. But in many cases, because these group homes are taking kids with the most complex needs, a group home will say, well, they need two-to-one care, which means um, two workers for each child, or even three-to-one care or one-on-one care. And every time the resources are augmented, as you can imagine, um, the pay um, or or the fee that that child fetches increases. And there are kids who are, and we've seen contracts that that show there are kids who um, require $1,200 a day for each day that they are in the care of a home. Well, you multiply that across a month and you can see that the numbers add up very quickly, especially for the companies that have decided to build an, quite an enterprise, I mean, in, meaning many group homes, many foster care homes. And when you're building that empire, you can again see how those dollars multiply and you can create quite a business. An economy of scale to some extent. And the more complex the child, the more lucrative the child, I, I gather. Um, yeah, it's not it, just the yeah. kids they're making money off of. Sorry, I've been no. to there. You know, they're also making money off of the real estate. For many people, the play, or I should say for some people, the play is that, you know, while you're running these group homes, you're also paying down the mortgages that the kids live in. And at the end of it, you've got a fleet of real estate. So... Um, some of them are getting wealthy, so say experts, and certainly we have been able to document the real estate wealth of some operators um, on account of all the properties they accumulate at the end of a certain number of years. What did you find specifically in this investigation when it came to Connor Homes? What were the conditions like? Oh, the investigation, the inspection rather reports that we received through freedom of information requests from the ministry were deeply disturbing. Mouse droppings in kitchen drawers. You know, there was a kid who was deemed to have regular headaches, but he couldn't get access to a Tylenol pill or Advil. Um, There was a kid who was at the home who was asked by an inspector why he wasn't wearing his glasses. And according to the inspector's um, account of the events, the boy told him, well, I lost my glasses at my last foster home. And Gosh, for any parents of a, in a blended family, you know how easy it is to lose things or leave things behind at one home to the next. He lost his glasses at his last foster home, the boy said. But Connor Holmes told him that he wasn't allowed to have a new pair of glasses until his next eye exam. And that was more than nine months away. 
And in the paperwork for this child, they didn't even know, know he wear, knew he wear, wore glasses. You know, one child's document said that he spoke French, but nobody was aware of that. There were ombudsman reports to the, to the province saying that there were complaints that kids were going hungry in these homes. And the pictures we've obtained from inside these homes literally show in a bedroom, which fortunately was vacant, that the ceiling caved in and that workers in that home had been complaining for weeks of water damage that was on account of mold that smelled so foul it would give them headaches throughout their shifts. Windows were boarded up for weeks, if not months, even in winter, workers told us. So these were homes that were falling apart and weren't paid attention to. And the result of that is kids felt that they were worthless because why was it even worth repairing their homes? What did the Connor family or what did the Connors have to say to this to you? Well, as you can imagine, through the course of our investigation, we sought their response to um, our questions, not only in a written way, but also on camera. They declined to appear on camera. We showed up at Bob Connor's waterfront vacation property in eastern Ontario, and he wouldn't even come to the door, um, even though he was inside. We sent lengthy questions, and a lot of them they declined to respond to directly. Um, They did say that, you know, for the first 40 years of their operations, their foster care license was renewed without any conditions, which suggests that things were fine for a time, though I should note that in more recent years, there have been conditions on their foster care license and they just surrendered the foster care license. They still, however, operate group homes, which is a logic that is lost on many, how it is that they cannot, they're forbidden from operating foster care homes, but they can operate a group home in Ontario Um, Yeah, they went on to say that their finances were audited and um, that they do their best to not only meet, but exceed the regulatory standards in Ontario, which begs the question, are the standards enough? You know, are inspections doing what they should be doing? Are they truly ensuring the well-being of kids who rely on these homes and these workers to protect them when the homes that they were brought up in originally were not sufficient to do so? That leads me to uh, to what I will talk to right about right after the break, which is where is the province in all this, and where is the supervisor, where is the supervisory aspect, where is the oversight? I'm speaking with Carolyn Jarvis, she's Global News's chief investigative correspondent, but her latest uh, series on uh, foster care, foster care group homes, in specific one uh, set of one company's group homes specifically, and just the conditions they found there, what it indicates perhaps about a broader issue, uh, and again, where is the province in all this? We'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is Carolyn Jarvis, the Global, Global News' chief investigative correspondent. We're talking about her latest investigation, uh, an investigation you've done with others, I should point out, um, on private for-profit uh, group homes for foster kids in Ontario, specifically one uh, company's group homes, uh, specifically in this case, but also paints a, a broader picture here. Where is the province in all this? Because one would assume that once they've the child has been taken, has has set up residence in, in one of these homes that the that the ministry would have some sort of a duty of care when it came to that child's well-being. Yeah, good assumption on your part there, Ben, and, and that of many others as well. So really there's two bodies that that would hold accountability in this case, beyond the the operator, the home itself, the company, the private company. One is the Children's Aid Society that contracts out that company. They have a duty of accountability and oversight. And higher up the the chain, of course, is the ministry, which has set the entire infrastructure through which this flows. It allows private for-profit operators to fundamentally exist in the province. It gives the grants them licenses based on what are usually annual inspections to make sure that they are functioning and operating as one would expect them to. Um, When we launched our first series of stories and, and our special on the new reality, Global's the New Reality, a month ago, um, Ford, Premier Ford, 
promised on the election trail based on our findings at that time that this was going to be one of his key priorities as soon as he resumed office. And um, although we have yet to hear from him and the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services declined again our offer, an extension of an interview, you better believe we're going to be knocking on their door in the days to come saying, okay, you promised this would be a priority. What are you going to do about it? He said before that they were going to be increasing oversight and inspections, which is the conservative way, you know, to make sure that um, things are policed properly, but inspections aren't working. Um, What people say to us is that they amount to a checklist. You know, do you have a fire extinguisher? Is your food following the Canada Food Guide, which is not without its merit to analyze, but there's a lot of other things that need to be captured. Like, is the kid happy? (laughs) You know, is this as loving an environment as it could be? Um, you know, are there, are there things on the walls? Does it feel like a home? Um, how are we engaging with these kids? When you say there are, you're offering them therapy, what is that? How do we quantify that? What does that actually mean? And, and what are the outcomes of the kids? What do kids say on what you would call in a, in a job and exit interview? So when the child leaves, what do they tell you then about what their experience was like in this home? And I, to this point, have not seen inspections that capture that sort of quality of care. And boy, Ben, there have been for years, dare I say decades, documents and blueprints authored by highly respected people that the government has even commissioned and paid for to produce that have literally given a roadmap on how to fix things. And for whatever host of reasons, they haven't done so. And so the system remains flawed and broken, despite people within the ministry who may have had may have the very best of intentions, but things just aren't changing quickly enough for the kids who need them. And so we will be knocking on those doors to ask again what will be happening to make sure that kids are being protected as they require. I would imagine one of the big problems too is where do you place these kids if not in the homes they're already in? There's already a lack of space. Well, this is, and again, just to return to that earlier point, it's a problem that is has been augmented by the pandemic. I mean, you can imagine how we all sort of close ranks and shut our doors because we were told to. And so foster care homes weren't opening up their doors to new people and heavens knows what sort of virus when everything was unknown at that time. And so many children's aid societies and their and their executive directors have told me that there is a real absence of foster parents um, to take in kids in needs. And that is a fundamental problem. But there's also, you know, a mindset and a philosophy doing everything we can to keep kids within their families and within their communities, provided they are healthy enough to stay there and there are supports to keep them there. Progressive children's aid societies do do that, but not all. Um, You know, in some communities, there just aren't options. And so kids are sent down south, unfortunately, from First Nations. We've seen that historically, and it still continues to this day. I mean, it's very hard for our children's aid society or what's called an Indigenous well-being society in the far northern reaches of Ontario to supervise the, the, the operation of a private group home that's in far eastern Ontario. So things become tricky. And, and communication between those children's aid societies and Indigenous well-being societies about, hey, what's that operator like? Or is it, is it a healthy place to send a kid? Or, and what experience did you have? Historically, that line of dialogue hasn't been easy to access or hasn't been happening at all. I'm told that that's changing, but who knows if it's happening fast enough. Of course, these are some of the most vulnerable kids in society. Carolyn Jarvis, thank you so much. Look forward to the next installment of this investigation. Um, I thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ben.